Okay, so before I tell you this story, you first have to understand that I loved my little brother. I did, I did, I do. But it was my duty to teach him things that only big brothers can teach. Now, next door to us, in the neighbor's backyard, prowled the biggest, meanest, most vicious dog that has ever walked the earth. Some sort of mixture between a wolf, a Doberman, and a bear. And long ago, some brave soul had marked a line in the dirt that this monster could not go past. His cast iron chain held him back, stretched tight as he slammed against it in absolute fury, chomping, biting, snapping. Hellhound desperate to tear kids apart with steel jaws. It was right there at that line in the sand that I stood two or three inches away from annihilation with my younger brother. He was maybe six years old. We could see the inside of the dog's snapping maw. And right there, right then, I told my little brother the story of Candyland. It was a magical place. Everything smells of cotton candy. The trees are made of chocolate and you ride lollipop cars from one gingerbread house to the next. And my little brother said, really? For real? I want to go there. Oh, that would be great. But there's a problem. What, what, what? Well, there's only one way in. Where? And to this day, I don't know why I did it, but I pointed to Cujo's doghouse. You have to go knock on the floor of that house and the fairies will let you in. For real? Yup. My little brother looked at me. He looked at the snarling beast inches away from our faces and he did the bravest thing I've ever seen. He ran. With short little fat boy legs, he ran right past the beast, straight for the doghouse. The monster was so surprised by the time he realized he should be eating this little boy. My brother was already pounding on the floor of the doghouse. Let me in! Let me in! I want to come to Candyland! Then the monster got lively. He raced back to take a bite out of boy. But my little brother was too quick. He died, rolled, ran, bobbed, weaved, and somehow managed to get back over the line with his hind parts intact. The dog was furious, snarling crazy, but my brother was upset as well. I knocked and knocked, but I couldn't get to Candyland. Gotcha. What? Gotcha. I just tricked you, fool. There's no such thing as Candyland. He took a deep breath. <laughs> no, 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 fool. Shh, I'll try to teach you a lesson. Ma, ma! Be quiet, be quiet. My mother came running top speed to see her baby in trouble. What's going on? What's going on? He told her everything. And my mother said, oh, Candyland, huh? Candyland, you want to go see Candyland? Come with me, come with me, the both of y'all. And she sat us down at the kitchen table. She cut two Big slices of chocolate cake. Mmm, mama, that looks good, mama. And she gave them both to my little brother. And you're going to sit right there and watch him eat. <laughs> yeah. See, sometimes, even when you think you're the one playing the joke, the joke's on you. 
today. From PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Original Prankster. Amazing stories from real people about real people who sometimes take the joke too far. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Now, Snappers, when you were a kid, did you have a favorite pet? Because if you did, you know just how special a pet can be to a youngster. Snap Judgment producer Pat Lassidi Miller, he had a pet right during those tender years a youngster will never forget. When I was a little kid, I used to have a pet fish. Now, I'm not talking about your little goldfish in a bowl named Bubbles or Skipper or Goldie. No. My fish was named Dojo. Dojo was an aquatic samurai, a warrior of the water world, a ninja with gills. And he was the baddest, coolest, most awesomest fish of them all. And when I'd get up in the morning, I'd run over to the fish tank, I'd shake in some little fish flakes to feed them, and then I'd watch as Dojo would hide in the shadows and then strike. Taking each one of the unsuspecting food flakes as his victims. One day, my dad woke me up, and he was screaming and shaking me, saying, Pat, Pat, wake up, wake up, wake up, Pat, wake up. And I popped up out of bed all scared and startled, saying, what? What's going on? What? What? My dad looks at me and says, Pat, the dojo, your fish, he's dead. (gasps) What? He's dead? Yeah, I don't know what to tell you, but I went over to his tank this morning and he was dead. Sorry, son. And then he left the room. I was crushed, devastated, and I started crying, saying, No! Oh, my dojo, no! Dojo, you died! My sidekick, my man, my favorite friend, was gone, never to fight another day. So I got out of bed, mustered up enough will just to barely drag my sad little feet out to the kitchen for breakfast, And I sat down and started poking at the ego. Couldn't eat, the syrup soaking into it till it was soggy. And my mom looks at me and says, Pat, what's the matter? You look so sad, what's going on? And I tell her, Mom, you didn't hear? The dojo. Dojo is dead. And she goes, what? And my mom looks at my dad like, he died? And then my dad kicks in, oh yeah, April Fools. (laughs) What? I didn't even really know what that meant, April Fools. So they broke it down like it's a day where you can lie and pull pranks on people. And then you say April Fools and everything goes back to normal. Yeah, April Fools, son. Your dojo's not dead. It's a joke. Well, that's not funny. 
That's mean. And my mom says, Yeah, honey, that's mean. So my dojo isn't dead? No, no, he's fine. Go look for yourself. I wiped the tears from my eyes and ran over to the tank as fast as I could. And there was my dojo. Darting around the tank like he always did. Hey, dojo, I knew you wouldn't die on me. And I went outside to play, and after a few hours, I came back in to say hi to Dojo. And I got up to the tank. I looked in, and Dojo wasn't swimming. He was floating, belly up, at the surface. Dojo was dead. Like for real. No April Fools, no joke. Dojo had actually died. I don't know what kind of sick coincidence that was, but when I saw that he was dead, I couldn't cry anymore. I was already cried out. So I left the tank and walked over to my dad and said, Hey, Dad, Dojo is dead. Ah, <laughs> good one, son. I already got you at that. April Fool's, right? No, Dad. Dojo really died. I would never joke about Dojo. Big thanks to Pat Masidi Miller for that piece. And fear not, Pat, because I know the spirit of the Dojo is strong in you. Pat Masidi Miller. And now, Snappers, you know that times sure have changed. Nowadays, you've got the young folk acting like old folk. The old folk acting like young folk. But with the nudity on the TV, people just don't know how to act. Well, we here at Snap Judgment, we won't stand for it. We're going to go back to a different time. Because back in the 1950s, a man named Alan Abel had more than just a few things to say about the moral state of this country. I studied music and I played the drums. I played professionally and during the late 50s and early 60s. I was playing at Radio City Music Hall with the orchestra there. But then after a while, I realized that it's a dead end with music. I, I didn't want to just pound the drums all my life. No, no, no. I want to do something different. I, I want to you know, be funny and maybe write. One day, while I was driving along the highway, I rounded the bend, and all of a sudden, traffic was backed up three or four rows, and I, I was actually second or third from a herd of cows, and they seemed to have formed a circle around a cow and a bull mating in the middle of the highway. And I watched people's expressions. I saw a couple of salesmen, they were laughing hysterically. And I saw the uh, two nuns, their heads were buried so they couldn't see it. And 
remember there was another woman who just looked so chagrined and angry at what was going on. All these different expressions. For heaven's sake, how could these animals do that? And I thought, it's because the whole world is their bedroom. You know, they don't have any sense of morality. And I thought, I want to write a satire about clothing all these naked animals. And thus was born my idea called Sina, S-I-N-A, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, whereby all pets should wear clothing, any animal that stands higher than four inches or longer than six. And how do you explain to a four-year-old why mommy and daddy are dressed, but Rover the dog is naked? You can't do that. So they grow up with a double standard of living. And remember my motto, a nude horse is a rude horse. I wrote this up and sent in the article at that time, the Saturday Evening Post, and this was the late 50s. And it was rejected angrily by the editor who said, this is a deplorable organization. We want nothing to do with it in this magazine. And I thought, they believe it. They think it's for real. So I printed up leaflets about clothing your pets and left them everywhere. And uh, before I knew it, I was going on the television and radio. I work for the Society Against Indecency to Naked Animals. And we have millions of dollars in our private foundation. We want to educate people about the need to clothe all animals. My props included uh, half slip for a cow, Bermuda shorts for horses, and, uh, you know, a burlap sack for a deer. I had all these crazy garments. There are more highway accidents due to the fact people take their eyes off the highway to look at a naked cow and bull, and they run into a truck or a tree. But I would like to warn people out there to keep away from the Jersey Turnpike with all the nudity. We've declared that highway a moral disaster. It was outrageous. The people around the country really seriously believed that this campaign to clothe naked animals was justified, and then it spread. It reached literally millions. We have over 50,000 members of Senna in the United States, and we're bringing in about 400 members every week. People got together floats during parades to clothe animals, and they'd have a mock barnyard on the, the float showing the animals wearing clothing. We have a lab in New Jersey that does nothing but take clothes on and off cows all day long. Somebody had a private plane and they painted S-I-N-A, our organization's initials, underneath their wings. And then they dropped clothing for animals on a cow pasture on a big farm there <laughs> so that they could put the clothing on the animals. Now these are pantaloons for a nice uh, kangaroo or if you have a pet deer you could use those. One woman in Santa Barbara offered a $40,000 check to help the cause but I, I had no interest in making money because I knew it would be fraudulent. I didn't ever cross that line. Our motto is decency today means morality tomorrow and remember a nude horse is a rude horse. Newspapers began to pick it up, the Daily News, the New York Times, then Playboy magazine, San Francisco Chronicle. They had a headline on the first page, Animal Nudity in San Francisco is Sinful. The zoo is a peep show for children. And, uh, and they were all on this offbeat organization that they believed was real. G. Clifford Proud Jr. is president of Sina, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. The entire dynasty had clothed horses that went into battle. The Today Show said, we want to have your president of the organization appear. So I got my friend Buck Henry, who had a great sense of humor. He wrote The Graduate subsequently and Get Smart and 
You know, on Saturday Night Live, he was on that show for a long time with John Belushi. But Buck, who at that time was unemployed, he agreed. He said, okay, I'll go out and pose as G. Clifford Prout, the president of this non-existent organization. And then Walter Cronkite, he interviewed Buck Henry. I'm Walter Cronkite, and for the CBS Evening News here on TV 12. Buck went on the full CBS network, playing his role as the president. Well, during the days of the ancient Vikings and the great drinking halls where they held their feasts, they had huge dogs with long hair that were used as napkins. And uh, (laughs) Walter kept a straight face all along because he, again, believed it because the news, you know, is serious. You don't want to play around. He really thought that this guy is a certified nut, of course, and (laughs) this is his campaign. Well, at first, it was a joy ride. Then it became a roller coaster. And then a slippery slide, not knowing how I was going to land. And after six years, I was really tired of it. Buck Henry got tired of it, and he called me, and he said, I'm surrounded by reporters. There's at least a dozen of them here. They're, they're really angry, and they want to know the truth, and I, I can't leave the room. I can't get dinner. What should I do? I said, okay, Buck, we've had a great ride, a great romp. Tell him the truth. And so he did. He went out and got photographed. And it was a feature story in Time magazine. I think it was around 1963 or 64. It was just one great big hoax. I think it just absolutely captured the imagination of people that there's some crazy guy out there and his team who wants to put clothes on naked animals. They never stopped and thought, well, it could be a joke. No, because nobody would do something like that as a joke. I would, and I did. I'm putting on a top hat, tying up a white tie, brushing off my tail. Yeah. I'm dudin' up my shirt front, putting in the shirt studs, polishing my nails. I'm stepping out, my dear, to breathe an atmosphere that simply reeks with class. Thank you, Alan Abel, for sharing that story. Some of the music you just heard was made by Alan Abel himself. And I'll tell you what, Snappers, this man's antics do not stop here. Alan has perpetrated countless hoaxes. And check out the hilarious documentary, Abel Raises Cain created by Alan's daughter, Ginny Abel, along with Jeff Hockett. Special thanks to both of them. And Jeff and Ginny, they're working on a screenplay for a feature film based on Alan Abel's life story. To learn more, we're going to have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. The piece was produced by Pat Masidi Miller. Listen to Snap Judgment's original prankster episode. And let me assure you, no one is safe. In fact, coming up next, someone's even messing with Santa. For real. When Snap Judgment, the original prankster episode, continues.
Are you looking for more new NPR podcasts? Try Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's a spirited discussion of movies, books, television, and nostalgia. Go to iTunes, search for podcasts, and get NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the original prankster episode. And if you are listening with a young person, a tiny person that every year anxiously awaits the arrival of a fat man from the North Pole, this next piece might not be the one they need to hear. Fair warning, it does raise some unfortunate questions, as our next storyteller, Snap's Jamie DeWolf, often does. And after you hear it, I'm sure you're going to have a few questions for him as well. Jamie DeWolf. When Christmas time rolls around, everywhere you look, there's Santas. Supermarket Santa, sexy Santa, Santana Santa, Santa's everywhere on every single corner. Now all it takes is a suit, and these were all a bunch of fakes. So that year, my friends and I in my small town set out to expose the biggest fake of them all. Sun Valley Mall, Concord, California. The biggest mall in a 15-mile radius on one of the most desperate shopping days of the year. And the best time to attack. It'd been a day of surveillance and a week of planning, and now it was D-Day. Our team was in position, and me and Matt snuck our costumes into a duffel bag into the Macy's dressing room. Now by day, Matt is a Kinko's manager, but by night, he's an unrepentant prankster, emptying gallons of bubble bath in city fountains and dressing up as an old man just to get senior citizen discounts. Right now, he's forcing himself into a green velvet suit that at 6'2 was two sizes too small, and then topping it off with a pointy little green hat to transform into Slappy, your favorite elf that you never heard of. I got a pillow stuffed into a red jumpsuit, and I make a huge, majestic mound of a beard out of shaving cream with two foamy eyebrows to go with it. We walk out the stall and take one last look in the mirror. Oh yeah, we were no longer small town idiots. We were now agents of chaos who had never looked so festive. Slappy filled his rucksack with candy because candy causes confusion and we stood at the edge of Macy's taking in the scene. Now the mall was at the peak of Christmas frenzy. Two open floors of thousands of parents dragging exhausted children and in the middle of it all was Santa's village where he sat in the open under 12 foot tall candy canes. The line ran 60 deep while photographers snapped off shots of kids on his lap for $20 a pop. Slappy nodded and we stepped forth. He started hurling candy into the air, and children broke free from their parents at full speed to grab everything we were tossing. I grabbed my big, luscious belly, and I bellowed, Ho, ho, ho! Christmas came early this year, kids! Have you been good? Have you been bad? If you've been bad, be better! Kids were mobbing at our feet as we moved into position in the full view of two floors, facing the mall Santa, who was laughing with a fat boy in blue on his lap. I stopped in mock shock, an eyebrow 
already sliding downward into a crazy angle. And there's this beautiful moment where our eyes meet, this mall employee in a rental suit, looking back at his shaving cream funhouse mirror version of himself. And I wink, and his mouth drops. And then I begin. Ho, ho, ho! Who is this, boys and girls? Why, he doesn't even look like me! This man is an imposter! Children, don't you recognize me? It's me, Santa! The mall traffic has been brought to a sudden halt. Santa puts his gloved hand over the fat boy's eyes. I brought your favorite elf, Slappy! And we came all the way from the North Pole to give you candy and presents! Slappy made it rain fistfuls into the winter village. Now some parents are laughing, but other parents are exploding, and a soccer mom keeps screaming, Shut up! Oh my God, shut up! Get out of here! God, please shut your mouth! Upstairs, our lookout team is nodding towards security, who are fumbling for their walkie-talkies. And on cue, our team member dresses Jesus, bursts out from the confused crowd, yelling, You're both imposters! You're nothing but a make-believe fairy tale! This day is about Jesus! And I rear up, throw my little hands back, and hit him with my pillow gut, saying, No! This day is about me! And he yells, Jesus! And I say, Santa! And he says, Jesus! And I realize that I haven't been arrested yet. Now, we had assumed that none of this would actually get this far, and my plan was to get handcuffed in front of Santa's village and then get marched to the station, where I was then going to insist I was actually Santa Claus for 24 hours, just like the movie Miracle on 34th Street. But our second floor lookout was jetting his thumb to the exit, and it occurred to me, we could actually get away with this. I say to Slappy, let's make a run for it. And with one last pillow gut push to Jesus, we break through the crowd at full speed. And I'm yelling, Santa's got a lot of presents to give out, kiddies. Come on, move, move, while shaving cream is flying in chunks behind me. We duck into the video arcade and hide behind a Mortal Kombat console. As security storms past, screaming in walkie-talkies. We snuck our way into the arcade bathroom and I'm stripping from the outfit, washing mounds of shaving cream off, when suddenly, the door opens. And it's a little boy, staring, mouth agape, at a six-foot-two elf, in a green velvet suit, and a sweating man with half a beard hanging from his chin. And the boy says, Whoa, are you Santa? My foam eyebrow finally falls on the floor. I wink and say, Thank you so much, Jamie DeWolf. There is something wrong with that man. No, Jamie, you are not invited to the family holiday party this year. Thank you very much. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf with sound design by Renzo Gorio. You know that 
that the life of a young writer, <laughs> the life of an old writer, it ain't easy. And sometimes you've got to go corporate just to keep the lights on. Tatiana Brown, she found out about making that dollar bill the hard way. It all started with an ugly navy suit. Or rather, it started with a job and a dress code that required all brand new employees to wear an ugly navy suit. I had moved to New York City to be a poet. I lucked into the highest paying office job I'd ever had, one that would fix all my cash flow problems. The suit was the catch. Actually, the fact that the job sounded really boring was the catch, but the suit represented that problem. Everything was an awful, neutral, tan color inside the skyscraper where I worked. Tan marble floors, tan carpet. My boss, a woman named Nan, had teeth stained tan by coffee. She dropped me off at my cubicle with a foot-high stack of forms, complimented me on my suit, and left. This was the moment when I had my first corporate panic attack. Soon, I'd be eating egg salad sandwiches at my desk for dinner and dying alone under a stack of contracts. In my second week, on my way out the door from my pre-dawn commute, I ran into one of my roommates stumbling home from a long night bartending. (laughs) What? Is today national dress like a flight attendant day or something? Because that is exactly what you look like. National dress like a flight attendant day. The more I repeated that title to myself, the funnier it sounded. If today really was national dress like a flight attendant day, it would be a special occasion. And then I realized there was nothing stopping me from treating today like it was a national holiday. I could still pretend today, and every day really, was an important celebration of something silly. It gave me hope. I found a silk scarf and tied it around my neck. Then I took a picture of myself with my cell phone and texted it to a bunch of my friends with the caption, Happy National Dress Like a Flight Attendant Day! That night, I set up an email list to all of the people I knew working dull jobs and formally invited them to play along with me in what I was now calling the National Holiday Project. Come up with something ridiculous to do every day of the week, frame it as a fake national holiday, and encourage huge amounts of group participation. I made a dress entirely out of stolen post-it notes for National Inappropriate Use of Office Supplies Day, and I struck up an unlikely friendship with the security guard who caught me on tape on National Dance Like an Idiot in the Elevator Day. The results were incredible. The National Holiday Project was becoming an underground hit. I declared National Have a Fake Sword Fight with Someone in Public Day. I got pictures and videos of fake sword fights happening in honor of my holiday from all over the country. I got a photo of two chefs fighting with spatulas and ladles in a restaurant kitchen. It turns out, nonsense is the secret to stomaching a boring office job. I was a woman who could decree all manner of weirdness and have it be done. The next Friday, National Animal Print Appreciation Day. My ensemble for the holiday, leopard print pencil skirt, zebra print blouse, tiger print scarf, and snakeskin shoes. There really is nothing like watching people in business suits deliberately not looking at something silly. 
One of those oblivious office folk walking past was my supervisor from London. She found my outfit grossly unprofessional and senseless. I got fired as soon as I walked back in from lunch. After two days of moping, I checked my email and found a message from a local arts center's HR department. A colleague just forwarded me a few of your national holiday project newsletters, and it is clear your organizational skills and creativity are off the charts. Is there any chance you're available? And to think, if it weren't for that ugly navy suit, I might have never learned that a little mischief and creativity can really pay off. Thank you, Tatiana Brown. And please, 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 get yourself a real job. Tatiana Brown is the founder and editor-in-chief of Lit Slam, a San Francisco-based audience-curated poetry journal and variety show. Find out more at thelitslam.com. The piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Anna Sussman. You're listening to Stamp Judgment, the original prankster episode. And when we return... We've got stories about how people will prank for love and how they'll prank for revenge when Snap Judgment, Storytelling with a Beat, continues. Stay tuned. Don't forget to download Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. It's a spirited roundtable of movies, books, nostalgia, and television. You can find it on iTunes under Podcasts. PRX and NPR. This is the original Prankster episode, and my name is Glenn Washington. Now, rare is the prank that is pulled for absolutely no reason. Usually, the prankster is looking for some kind of human connection. And listen close now, because this is an original radio drama by Snap Judgment's Stephanie Fu. Jenny listened. That's what I liked about her. I liked a lot of things, like how she always tripped going up the stairs, how she ate all the parts of the salad I didn't like, and the way she zipped up her dress. But the best thing of all was when she would ask me, Hey, honey, how was your day? Sometimes I told the truth. Most of the time I just made stuff up. I'd invent terrible sales calls and Japanese fusion lunches when all I'd really had was Burger King. I did it to make her laugh. And I did it to fill up the space. Because as good as Jenny was at listening, she didn't talk about herself much. Whenever I asked how her day went, she just said, Okay. Okay good? Okay bad? Come on, how was work? Just okay. One day she seemed even less okay than usual. I missed her laugh, so all of a sudden I thought of this prank I used to pull back in high school. I pulled my computer out and said, You ever heard of IP Relay? No. It's a chat service for deaf people so they can make phone calls. Like... Say I can't hear, but I want to call my friend Bob. I put in Bob's number. The operator will call him. I type in, hello, Bob. and She'll talk to him for me. She'll say, hello, Bob. And whatever Bob says back, she'll transcribe it and type it back to me. Get it? No. Let me show you. I typed Jenny's number to the IP relay site. Her phone rang. She answered it. The woman on the other line said, 
You are receiving a call from a person who is using a computer and an IP relay service. Will you accept this call? Yes. I typed, how are you today, Jenny? How are you today, Jenny? <laughs> I'm good. On my screen, I saw Jenny's words in front of me. I'm good. Not fine. Not okay. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. What did you do today? I had a fried chicken sandwich for lunch, and I wrote copy, and I complained about how my boss never washes her dishes, and I went to the store and bought new lipstick. It's crazy, but she'd never said that much about her work life in one go before. What color is your lipstick? I want to imagine you wearing it. <laughs> it's cherry red. That sounds nice. I miss you, Jenny. The gap in your teeth fills the void in my heart. Jenny looked at me with acid in her eyes, but then the corner of her cherry red mouth turned up. I miss you too. I miss the musky woodchuck scent of your chest pelt. Oh Jenny, I get so excited. Oh how I like it. I try, but I can't fight it. Oh you're dancing real close, real real slow. You're making it hard for me to be apart from you. The service is solely for the hearing impaired. <laughs> the poor woman. I think I read somewhere like 90% of their calls are prank calls. Oh my god, I feel so bad for her. But not that bad. You are receiving a call from a person who is using a computer. We started doing this all the time, whenever we needed a good laugh. Sometimes I felt like Jenny was talking to the IP relay lady more than she was talking to me. It seemed like we always got the same lady. There was no way to be sure but she always got fed up whenever we couldn't hold it anymore and started cracking up. But even though we were torturing her, I started looking forward to hearing IP Relay Lady's voice. Baby, if you were a bottle of wine, you'd be in the 15 to $25 range. You remind me of Panda Express because you make my heart go Kung Pao. Buffle puffs mix squishy bottoms. I want you to walk into my wonder palace and eat marshmallows off my bumblebee. <laughs> Jenny broke up with me over text message. I can't do this anymore. I'm sorry. It's over. That was it. Concise as always. Then she stopped returning my calls. She even left all of her stuff. I heard from my buddy later that she'd started dating one of her coworkers. I guess I kind of went nuts for a while. I didn't leave my house for two months and I stopped talking to everybody. Well, except for one person. Late at night, I type my own number and IP relay. You are receiving a call from a person who is using a computer and an IP relay service. Will you accept this call? Yeah. Hey honey, how was your day? It was great. I had an ahi tuna burrito from that truck again. How was your day? Okay. I love you. I love you too. That piece was written and produced by Snap Judgment's Stephanie Fu. Big thanks to our voice actors, Sam Rada and Lindsay Lee Keel, for their help. And next up, I am so thrilled because now he is a regular on the Snap Judgment program, 
the modern-day Renaissance man, he of several appearances on HBO Deaf Poetry Jam, Reeves. Take it away. As a senior in high school, I only applied to one university. UC Santa Cruz was the only school I wanted to go to. I was totally confident that I would get accepted. And I did get accepted. But the one condition was that I get a C or better in trigonometry. And I got a D. You know, chalk it up to senioritis or discovering sex that semester, but I I got a D and I was disgusted that this one little tick was going to totally ruin my life, right? I I wanted to go off to college. I resolved to change that D by any means necessary. I was editor of the high school newspaper. I had skills. So I went to the copy center and I made a forgery of my transcript. I did a pretty good job. I changed the D to a C, simple paste up, printed out a clean copy, put it in a gray folder, and then took that forgery back to campus. And I knew what I needed, because this is something I couldn't forge. In the admissions office, there was this stapler-looking device that imprinted transcripts with an embossed seal. There's always some sophomore girl at that desk, and I figured I'm going to you know, get her in cahoots, I'm going to distract her, I'm going to seduce her if I must. It's going to be easy. Come on, girl! When I showed up at that door, I realized my miscalculation, and it rattled me. This was summer session now. That sophomore girl is at the beach somewhere, and behind the desk is Mrs. H. And that is like hearing that you will have to slay a dragon today. There's no distracting Mrs. H. I'm not going to be seducing Mrs. H anytime soon. So I walk over and ask Mrs. H for a transcript. And she asks me, is it official? I say no. She prints one out. I put it in the gray folder and I turn to leave her office. When I get to her door, I realize what I could do. But I got to do it now. So I reach into the gray folder without looking, and I pull out the bottom sheet. That should be my forgery. And I figure it doesn't matter anyway. If I give her the forgery and she imprints it, I'll have it. If I give her the real one and she imprints it, big deal. I'll just crumple it up and throw it away. I hand her the piece of paper and I say, wait, I am going to UC Santa Cruz. That's what this is for. Is that considered official? And Mrs. H, she's got this eye-rolling kids-these-days kind of expression. She takes the piece of paper from me. She imprints the embossed seal. And then she does something that I didn't expect. She puts it into an official envelope. She seals it with tape. She handwrites, not valid if seal is broken, puts the envelope in her outbox, and says, I'll address it and send it off this afternoon. My insides are quaking, and I'm seriously about to pee down my leg. Because if it didn't work, not only will my plan backfire, my plan is going to screw me. I turn, I walk out, I get to my car, and I open up the gray folder. And there's the transcript. Trigonometry D. There is a C on that other transcript. And right now, that transcript is on its way to the University of California at Santa Cruz, just like me. 
right, Reeves. Just so you know, I felt compelled to let the dean know of your treachery. And he said you'll be getting a call early next week. We'll have a link to Reeves' website, shopliftwindchimes.com, on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now, man, we have discussed it already, but things, they're getting all topsy-turvy. The modern-day hero is no longer the quarterback or the warrior. Nowadays, everybody wants to see the little guy take it all. And there's nothing better than a story about the revenge of the nerds. My name is Fritz Mueller. I went to college uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at Carnegie Mellon. So uh, this would have been the mid-80s when I was a freshman in college. And uh, I had just started there as a math major, kind of kind of geeky, with a lot of geeky roommates. I was living in one of the big dormitories on campus. It's a big old row of cinder block rooms. In the adjoining room uh, next to mine that freshman year was another student who was there on an athletic scholarship, a jock. And he was really, uh, at that time in my life, like a un- welcome intrusion on my little geek heaven. He had this habit of coming back to his room, and he had a big 80s boombox pushed right up against the adjoining wall to my room. And he had one tape, it seemed, on that boombox, which was Billy Idol, and he played Rebel Yell over and over and over and over and over, loud, pouring through the wall. I still can't listen to it. Over the course of the first few months of college, it drove me slowly insane and filled me with, like, ever-increasing rage. And finally, one day, I was studying, and I just couldn't take it anymore. I decided I had to do something to cause this to stop. I went down, and I undid the wall plate where the electrical outlet was. And I got into the junction box, and I lifted the hot wire off the outlet, thinking that this would cut the power to the outlets and make it stop this horrible noise. Boombox kept going. He had batteries in it. (laughs) So that just filled me with more anger. Being an electronics nerd, I had a bunch of stuff that I brought to college with me. Electronic gear of various types. And one of the things I had in my box was this thing called a buzz coil. Buzz coil is an old ignition coil from really old motor cars. Before engines had magnetos in them, it was used to generate the high voltage that goes across spark plugs. So this thing generates, you know, in the order of 10,000 volts. And I had this sitting close at hand, so since I'd lifted the hot from the socket and I had the boombox isolated, I thought, well, this is my chance to solve this problem once and for all. Got the induction coil and jammed uh, about 10,000 volts right into the back of offending neighbor's boombox. This had the intended result. It made a really gratifying kind of buzzing, crackling noise. (laughs) Kind of a thing, lots of static noise. It sounded great, followed by the doormate there going, whoa, man, whoa. I'm sure that the boombox was was done. I think I probably took out like a a clock radio or two down the hallway and collateral damage. Very quietly, uh, you know, put the switch plate back on, pushed my desk back up against the wall and continued to do my math homework as if nothing had happened. Shortly after that, offending neighbor guy uh, moved out to one of the fraternities on campus, and I think everybody was happier with, with that arrangement. Space. 
thanks to Fritz Mueller for sharing his story. Check out his band, Vandella, on our site. The story was produced by none other than our own Stephanie Fu. Now, the joke is up. If you like today's program, the name of the show is Snap Judgment. And yes, we have the Facebook, we have the Twitter hours on hours of Snap Goodness on our website, snapjudgment.org. And if you did not like today's show, the name of the program is Car Talk. That's Car Talk. My name is Click and Clap. And it was produced in association with those wonderful people at the law firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Please give it up for the court jester himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. He's got jokes. Jamie DeWolf. And do not pull his finger, Pat Masidi Miller. Stephanie Fu owns a whoopee cushion. Anna Sussman doesn't eat yellow snow. Rita Daniels thinks New Mexico is hilarious. Renzo Gorio finds humor in old people. Lindsay Lee Keel finds humor in old people as well. And Will Urbina does not find humor. You know that lady who got up at the open mic and started talking about her cat for 45 minutes? Despite all that angry screaming from the crowd? Well, look, that was just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting trying out some new material. Go on back next week for the yodeling competition. Many thanks to the CPB. Now, if the public and the media meet at the bar one day and they get to talking, you know, and hanging out over the weekends and doing brunch and before their yoga class get to kissing, well, you'd have PRX. Putting the public in public media, PRX.org. Youth Speaks, because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. And while this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you could find yourself creeping where you know you should not be, wake up in a stranger's place in an unfamiliar bed, and you could hear her husband open up the door. You could jump in the closet only to discover that R. Kelly is already there. You can say, what is going on in here? And he could say, I've got a secret that you need to hear. And you could say, I don't know if this is the right time for confessions, R. Kelly. And he could say, I really need to get this secret out of my belly. I thought I could do it, but I, I can't because I'm drenched in sin. And you say, why are you telling me this? I am not your friend. I'm letting you know something that's really going to raise the bar. And R. Kelly says, even though this is not the news, this is NPR.